May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On this, the first Sunday of Lent, we are given perhaps two very familiar stories from Scripture. From our Gospel reading, we get the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert and resisting the offers of Satan. We always begin Lent with this reading from one of the Gospels. This year it comes from the Gospel of Mark. And so in Mark, the temptation in the desert is very much tied to Jesus's baptism and the voice from God saying, this is the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit immediately driving Jesus out into the desert to face temptation. It is only after that point that Jesus is able to begin the ministry of proclaiming the good news. And we begin each season of Lent with this story because that's kind of what Lent is about. We're taking 40 days of reflection to address temptations and weaknesses in our lives so that when that glorious Easter morning comes, we are prepared to once again proclaim the good news of the risen Jesus Christ. So we begin Lent in the desert. And it reminds us that the life of the faithful being driven by the Spirit leads us to places of hardness and weakness and temptation. A lot of folks will start Lent and they'll decide to give something up, right? Some temptation in their life or some distraction. Or they may take something on, some prayer discipline or Bible study. Now sort of the, the tongue-in-cheek thing is that you hear a lot of people that are like, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent, or I'm going to give up you know, reading People magazine for Lent. And if chocolate or popular culture is a stumbling block for you, then please absolutely give those up for Lent. But Lent isn't just about picking some trivial thing that you won't ever really miss and saying, I'm going to stop doing that for 40 days. Or taking on some discipline that doesn't really cause you to stretch or to learn. It really is about taking a long, hard look at yourself and seeking out the places in your life that need discipline and repair. Looking at your life of prayer, your life with reading and studying the scripture, your relationship with your family and friends and co-workers. Seeking those things out and taking a really hard and honest look at them and an accounting of your behavior there. Lent reminds us that through our baptism, we are given the grace, and in this season of Lent, we are invited to use that grace to resist our temptations and to build up and allow God to bind up 
the weaknesses that are in our lives. We started Ash Wednesday with a service here where we said prayers and we confessed sins and we came together and we had the sign of the cross marked with ashes on our forehead. And this is a solemn service and it reminds us that we are mortal, that we will one day die, and that there is sin in our lives that needs to be confessed. A lot of people avoid this service. It's a little dark. But as I pointed out, it's also a gift to us because on that day, we get to put away our pretended perfection that we try to carry with us all the time and to let God in. Ash Wednesday and the beginning of the season of Lent is the beginning of the challenge to really realize that the world isn't all about us. The world is about God. So, as we begin Lent and as we go through this season of Lent, since I know what comes next week and the week after and the week after, I'm going to invite us to spend a little time reconsidering what we think we know about God and our relationship to God and, and invite us to consider how we understand and what we mean when we talk about that we are a people of the new covenant, that we have this covenant with God that we live in and share in. Covenant, that word pops up. We think about that God made a covenant with Abraham. We hear it in our reading from Genesis that God makes this covenant with Noah. It's a curious little word. In law school, in first year property class, we talked about covenants that go in deeds to land. Um, and we talk about in the church, the covenants made with the patriarchs and the new covenant made with Jesus Christ. But since I was a first-year law student, I can't really remember a time that I sat down and tried to think about what the definition of a covenant is and why we use this language in understanding our relationship with God. So I did what most people do. So I got on the Google and I typed in definition of covenant. And it gives you a definition from the dictionary that says a covenant is an agreement or a contract. Well, we all know what a contract is, right? We sign them all the time, even when we don't realize it. We do it a lot of times with little thought. It's an Amtrak print everywhere, but we sign contracts when we get cell phones, we sign contracts when we get utilities hooked up for our house. If you use Facebook, you may not realize it, but you've signed a contract there to be able to use Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We sign contracts when we buy cars or houses. We sign contracts when we open bank accounts. Even if we don't sign it, we enter into contracts all the time. If you lend somebody something and say, you know, pay me back next week or give this back to me, you know, next month, and they say, okay, you have entered into a contract or an agreement. 
So why doesn't the Bible just make it easy? Or the guys that you know were tasked with translating the Bible into the English language where we understand, and instead of all this talk about covenants, why don't they just talk about we got a contract with God? Do we just think that the word covenant somehow sounds more holy, a little bit fancier than talking about contracts? I think the word covenant comes to us through all these translations on purpose. And because while the dictionary may define a covenant as contract, what the scripture is talking about is absolutely not that. And if we look at our reading from Genesis, I think we begin to see why covenants are so different than all these contracts that we enter into in our daily lives. This morning, we actually get the end of a story, right? This is the end of a very familiar story of Noah and the ark. We probably all know this from Sunday school. I can't read Noah's story without imagining the felt board that was in my Sunday school class that had all these little figures and all these little animals. And, you know, we were kids, and so you fought over which animal you got to put up onto the board. Like, nobody ever wanted to have, like, the chicken to put on the board. You always wanted something good, like a, like a horse or an elephant, to be responsible for getting into the ark, not something small. And this is a story that we've dressed up and cleaned up, and we tell it to our kids, and we paint it as murals on a wall. The animals always look sort of happy, a little relieved. They've been on a boat for a while, and they come off the boat into this tranquil place, and Noah is there with his family. But we've covered up a lot of the story when we make it a story for kids. When we strip away the felt figures and the sugar coating, the story about Noah is pretty serious. Because the story is, is that the world that had become so wicked, this world that God a few chapters before had created and said was good, this world, this good creation of God's had become so evil that God looked at it and decided that it must be destroyed completely. But in God's mercy, Noah and his family and a representative number of animals are spared to start over again. So, when we move away from the brightly colored mural in our Sunday school classrooms, we suddenly see a scene not of happy animals coming off the boats and Noah and his family being happy to finally walk on dry land with a nice little rainbow over the top and green grass that's probably soggy. Instead, we realize that this is probably a really dark, and scary scene. If you think about the natural disasters that went through last year and the aftermaths of hurricanes and flooding that we've seen on the TV, we know that after floods, landscapes are completely changed. Everything is gray or brown, depending on the dirt that was where 
the water had been. Things are moved around. The familiar neighborhood or streets or trees are always now some sort of alien landscape. And that's where Noah is in this story. He's standing in a world that he can no longer recognize with a family that is probably tired of being on a boat, happy to be on land, and animals that are just as scared and confused as the people are. Noah and his family have experienced and witnessed the fullness of God's might and power, but also of God's mercy. And this scene of destruction and uncertainty, it is God that speaks first and says that God will establish God's covenant with Noah and his descendants and, important and, with every, every living creature that God will never again destroy the earth with floods. And it's God that gives a sign of a rainbow, except they don't call it a rainbow. It's God's bow. It's God's weapon of destruction now turned away from creation that will be the sign or the symbol of this covenant that God has chosen to enter into with not just us, but with all of God's creatures that we share this planet with. If we pause for a moment and circle back to what our understanding of a contract is and compare it to what is happening in this scene, I think we now all of a sudden see what the difference is. When you enter into a contract, you're saying that I agree to do something so that you agree to do something else. So that usually means I agree to give money to the water company and the water company agrees to give me water and if I don't pay, I don't get water and in theory, if they don't give me water, I don't pay. But that's not what's happening with God's covenant. There's no exchange here. God is choosing to limit God's own power and God's actions are not dependent on anything that we do. And as we have lived in a world where we have hurt each other, where we have seen the extinction of animals and plants, where we have seen famine, where we see ice caps melting, where we see weather changing, where we see pollution in cities, where we see all of these things that again and again show that we have not taken care of the creation that we have been given to serve as stewards. We should be thankful that God's promise isn't dependent upon us. That God's covenant to withhold his wrath isn't dependent upon us doing right because we certainly have done a lot of wrong. This covenant business is about making a promise that's not dependent on the other person holding up their end. There's no out clause. There's no cancellation with covenants. 
And this first covenant that God makes, not just with us, but with all creation, is the covenant that says that God will choose to redeem the whole world. From grass to trees to dogs to cats to creepy crawly things to people, God has chosen to save it all. And it's God's promise and God's action that uphold the covenant again and again when we fail. The story of Noah, this covenant that we see of God acting and God promising in spite of what we do, is this very beginning of the story of salvation that is all through our scriptures. And it comes down to the very heart of what our relationship as a people of God is, and that's the simple fact that God does not fail, even though we might. Lent reminds us that even in our failures, even when we give in to temptation and sin or greed or power or destruction, even though we hurt each other in the world around us, that God's covenant does not become null and void. Lent reminds us that the covenant continues and that we are yet again called and invited to repent and start over precisely because it's not about us, it's about God. And so, knowing that, going through this season, knowing that the covenant relationship that we are in with God through our Savior Jesus Christ is what will prepare us and lead us to once again go out into the world and proclaim the good news of God and Christ, which is we may fail, but God never fails. That we may fall, but we can get back up because God is always faithful and always there. And so when we see a rainbow in the sky, we should think more than just of the story of happy animals coming off the ark, but that we should be reminded that that very moment, that very opportunity to stop and look at a rainbow in the sky and the breath that we take is because of God's grace and God's mercy. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.